HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Sandro Rocco, founder of Sanzo, the first Asian-inspired sparkling water using real fruit and no added sugar. He launched the brand in July 2019 in response to what he saw was a bridging of cultures east and west that he felt hadn't properly been represented in beverage. Since its launch, Sanzo has been a hit in NYC and online, counting among its key clients by Chloe, Mamafuku, and recently Whole Foods, Woot Woot, and LA-based Air One. Uh, welcome, um, Sandra. I feel like I—I I don't know. I—we've never met in person, but I feel like I've asked you for a lot of advice about everything from ops to design to you know videographers. So um, thank you for coming oh. on and for all of your advice. Well, thank you for having me. The uh, the power of a Slack network is is very large. So I'm appreciative to be on here. One thing, founders, that is a good note. Before we get into um, Sandro's whole story and the story of these amazing sparkling beverages, is that you, when you get invited to be in like Slack groups or cohorts of any sort of sort, like I tend to be like, nah. I'm just like a little bit like I'm not going to be active on those channels. I don't have that much to ask or to offer. I'm not like a networker in quotes, but I have found that every time one of those things has come my way, I do inevitably end up asking questions. And there are all these people out there that are going through the same stuff you are that are happy to answer. And you'll find that they also ask questions that you are able to answer. Um, so say yes. Would you agree? Would definitely agree to that, especially the newer you are and the more you have to learn. Um, and especially as I'm sure you've seen in this industry, there is a lot of inside baseball, a lot of insider knowledge. Um, yep. 
that you need to, to succeed here. So, um, and at least in this environment, food and beverage, uh, it's a very supporting community. So, yep. um, I definitely would say yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, um, let's talk a little bit about you and how, um, is, should I say Sanzo, Sanzo? Cause it's like your name. I say Sanzo, but is that wrong? Uh, no wrong way to say it. I say, uh, I guess if, unless you completely mispronounce it, um, but I, <laughs> but, uh, I, I say Sanzo. Um, okay. I feel like a lot of folks say Sanzo and I frankly don't correct them. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. So I'll say Sanzo cause you say Sanzo. Okay. Before we get into like all of that, tell me, um, I know that there's, there's a, there's a real cultural imperative for you, um, when, you know, around this company. And I feel like the, what I've read is that you are, um, Filipino American and that that's different than, you know, obviously it's, it's like you had a a bit of a foot in both cultures growing up, um, and that you wanted to sort of bring something to the world that represented that particular identity. So can you tell me a little bit about what that growing up was like and how did food play a part or, you know, what kind of, you know, what were the seeds of this? Sure thing. Um, so first off, thank you so much for having me. Um, this is, this is, this is awesome. This is fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was born to Filipino immigrants. My mother and father immigrated to the U S um, Flushing in Queens specifically, right. uh, in the mid eighties and had me. Um, and I kind of, I felt like it was such an interesting upbringing because while, you know, they, we eventually moved out to a town in central New Jersey mm-hmm. and, you know, we're obviously, and, and, and the makeup of the town was decidedly not uh, Filipino or not right. specifically Asian American. Um, you know, there's a, a town in central New Jersey called Sayreville and, uh, you know, pretty predominantly Italian American, Polish American um, and Irish American. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were brought up to really, um, you know, embrace the, you know, the cultures that were around us, the, the lifestyle that was there. So um, I often talk about how, you know, growing up, you know, I hear a lot of stories from other Asian Americans and, you know, they talk about, you know, their, their moms or their, or their grandmother's home cooking um, mm-hmm. of these, of, of, of their cultures. And for me, actually, like when I think of like home cooking or what I crave um, as like a childhood meal, it's like chicken Parmesan. Right. or like uh like a pot roast um, right <laughs> my parents very much wanted us to grow up as like the quote like the quintessential quote unquote um american, you know, american right. family yeah and so you know during family parties you know that you know we would eat um you know a lot more filipino food um you know things like that but you know thanksgiving i always felt was so interesting because we would have literally both the traditional american you know turkey ham mm-hmm. mashed potatoes sweet potato you know things like stuffing um and then would also have a couple of um you know like uh, specifically uh filipino dishes like there's this one particular type of noodles dish um <laughs> that we'd always have um what was never... it it's called pancit um okay it's like a, it's like a glass noodle mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. kind of like a rice vermicelli type of noodle with other vegetables a uh, bit of fish sauce, uh, soy sauce, and then usually like chunks of uh, of pork. Mm-hmm. Um, really delicious. Um, yeah, it sounds yeah. pretty banging. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, a nice, a nice little addition to uh, you know the American Thanksgiving. Um, but I really 
loved how c- candidly, like, I really loved how I, I was brought up. I always appreciate that mm. my parents um, brought us up with both the introduction right. to our own culture, but also um, you know having us adapt to the environments around us. And in many ways, like when I draw you know parallels to you know from my childhood to Sanzo, um, you know it's this idea of hey, you know, wanted to introduce. Um, these flavors, not necessarily just Filipino, but just generally like Asian um, indigenous flavors, Mm -hmm. um, but through a medium that was super accessible, um, you know, to folks who may never have had these before. It's really, it actually is like, I love the fact that this product, and I love this when you have this perfect sort of founder product fit, where Mm -hmm. like the product is almost like you in a can. You know, like it's like you can see, like I understand exactly. I can picture you as a kid, and I can picture you like if there were a product of you because it couldn't. You like it's just it's really interesting. It's really fun, like listening to the story. Um, Because and one question about meal time, Um, I guess you know, was there around holidays or like family sort of, whether it was like celebrations or, you know, mourning or anything, was that when like the, the comfort of home foods came out more or it was just like what brought out sort of the more Filipino dishes? What, what do you think happened in like, I'm assuming it was your mother that was doing most of the cooking. Yeah. Um, what was it that, you know, that would trigger her wanting to make that for dinner? It's mostly, it was actually mostly um, like extended family parties and gatherings. Mm-hmm. It's actually, it actually a bit less in the home. Um, right. And part, part of me thinks that, you know, a lot of Filipino food, it's, it's stews, uh, soupy dishes that are really best and most easily made in very large quantities. Right. And so, and if you know anything about like, I don't know, Filipino culture, whatnot, like we're, it's like bigger families, bigger gatherings, mm-hmm. like everything is, everything is just kind of bigger and larger. And right. so I think, I think at least part of it was like a practical thing where, right. you know, there's a, there's a, there's a number of dishes where you're like, hmm, making this for four or five people is a bit of a laborious task, right. but you know, making a gigantic stew for, you know, a family party of 40 or 50, eh, it's an easier, it's an easier sell. Right. Um, so I usually, so I usually think of Filipino food as more of a, like a, like a party food. Festive. Yep. And did you feel, I mean, were you aware of like how integrated did you feel into sort of like culture at school and things like that? And did you, did you feel like there was, you know, like a food sort of shaming or anything like that in in your experience? Sure. I mean, it's it's so interesting. I, I, I see and read uh, a lot of this, the, the almost at this point, like prototypical s- stories of, uh, you know, Asian American children going to school, having the smelly country crock mm-hmm. uh, container filled with something that all the kids can't tell what it is and smell <laughs> and, you know, getting kind of uh, like, angry, you know, pushed, pushed aside. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like, you know, I certainly wasn't the kid with the Lunchables, uh, but my parents right. always sent me to school with, you know, a sandwich. Uh, chips and apple, um, right. maybe some some soda. Or, but that was not uh, your experience. Um, it, well, it, 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 yeah, yeah, it really wasn't. I mean, there may be some 
frankly, like maybe some selective memory I'm having right. or things that I just block, I, I just decided to block out. But for the most part, um, that really wasn't my experience. And even when I was right. thinking about, you know, the, the founding of, of this brand, you know, how I wanted to tell our story, um, yeah, like I think there was. I think it certainly would have been in some ways easier uh, to yep. lead with something as, uh, as you know. This as is my response to my anger, kind of. Yeah, thing. right. And yep. I just I didn't have that. And and, and 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 but where I think I was really able to draw on um, on my upbringing was again like this idea of like you know for me Sanzo was is a drink that I think is it, it's meant to be though an introduction of mm-hmm. my culture to maybe people who have never had it before yeah and I think that is something that I did um, really kind of tap into only a bit later in life so I'm I'm 33 years old um, and is honestly only within the last maybe five to ten years um, having moved up to New York City um, you know where I really started tapping in a bit more to my Asian American identity and this right. idea that uh, you know, our food products are really, you know, on the same level, or in some cases, as I'm going to, as I would argue, like our calamansi, even right. better um, than perhaps some of our, you know, Western analogs, and really like exploring what yeah. that meant to elevate these flavors to the same, um, you know, premier like spotlight that a lot of the Western flavors uh, already have. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. But you did not plan on doing this in oh, high no. school or college. So what did you plan on doing and, and and what ended up happening with your career? Yeah. So it's probably one of the most random careers. Uh, we all have the most <laughs> careers. There's not a person. I mean, except for me, like the, I went to school and then I worked at Unilever and then I went <laughs> to thing. And then I started, I mean, most of the people on the show, we have like the weirdest windiest roads and, that's kind of part of the fun, you know? Yeah. Well, then let me add to it then. Yes, please um, do. So I graduated from university um, with a degree in chemical engineering uh-huh. um, and actually, <laughs> and for three years um, worked in a nuclear power plant in central <laughs> Pennsylvania. Wow. Um, yeah. Huh. Won't go, won't go into all the nuts and bolts of that yeah. job, okay. but basically it was, <laughs> you babysat up, you, you babysat a nuclear power plant, made sure Nothing, it didn't nothing, blow nothing up. Nothing bad happened. Yeah. Right. I, and like you wanted it to be a relatively uneventful job. Um, so like in that, in that, I think it's a James Bond movie where the really attractive, I think Russian woman is sitting, do you know this one? And oh yeah. she, and then like something starts to beep funny. That's yep. like what you don't want to happen. You do not want to have that happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and were you just sitting there like looking at, looking at the controls and just like making sure nothing beeped. I'm sure that's simplifying what your job actually was, but is that the essence of it? Uh, the essence. I mean, they're actually like very highly skilled and incredibly trained operators who specifically work in that area of the yeah. plant. Okay. Um, you know, my job specifically was like, it, it was a different part of the, of the plant and there's like a specific piece of equipment that right. like, yeah, not the yeah. most uh, not the most interesting role, but uh, very important. Yeah, but but important. But, but important. Yeah. 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 So that led to. So that led to not even close yet to the founding <laughs> of Sanzo. Um, so those are my first three years out of college. Uh, I wanted to, I while I while I enjoyed the experience. Um, you know, I really wanted to get a better understanding of like how the general world worked. And you can imagine being, you know, out in the sticks, 
um, you know, you kind of lose a little bit of that uh, perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of went the complete opposite way. And uh, when I moved up to New York City, um, the job that I had was on a trading floor for one of the big banks. Wow. Um, Yeah. That's a switch. Yeah. Very weird, very random also. But really, I just felt like it was a way to learn. Like, my, my, My thinking was, I felt like, way to learn how the world works is to kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, they tell you to follow the money and you, know, you <laughs> couldn't, you couldn't be any closer to the money than I, I think than like a Wall right. Street trading floor where you kind of understood, you know, how macro events in the world or even micro on the day to day impacted, you know, global financial markets, affected right. companies. Um, and I just was really fascinated with learning about all of that. Right. Yeah. So great learning experience, you know, had, kind of like the engineering extreme on one end and the business extreme on the other. Um, and then the stop that I made uh, before <laughs> starting Sanzo, there, there was a yet another five-year period um, where I became the, I worked for a startup that sold apparel. Um, oh. and, and basically for the first three years, I was our head of growth. And then for the last two years, um, I was our chief of staff. So basically the, the right-hand person to our CEO. Right. Um, and you know, help, which is help great them. and learned a lot, probably um, quite a lot. Yep. Yeah. And so you are one of those gentlemen who did not quit his day job until it was necessary as, as from my understanding. Right. So you, you founded Sanzo while you were working at another company, right? I mean, essentially. That's- that's right. right. Fortunately, fortunately, had the blessing of my uh, right. Yeah, I don't mean to like throw yeah. you under the bus and like now yeah, your right. boss didn't know that. But I think that <laughs> <laughs> news to him. No, but and so what? What was there an aha moment? Was there like I kind of want to do my own thing and I need to find what that is? Like yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, yes. There's a good period of almost like three to six months of exploration. I mean, there was a point. You know, five years at an early stage startup. Um, you know, you kind of feel the. Uh, you know, the, the drain of it. And there was actually a good period of time towards the very end when I was even debating taking a sabbatical, going to Southeast Asia, hanging out there for, you know, three to six months because it was super mm-hmm. cheap and then figuring out what I wanted to do there, right. uh, there and then. But pretty fortunately, when I was going down that path, um, you know, the inspiration for Sanzo really came in. And it, I almost feel like it's, you know, it was kind of, you call it an aha moment it was almost, or, or it was almost like these confluence of like watershed moments in American culture that I say right. kind of just like mm-hmm. smacked me over the head. Um, yep. You know, some of the biggest ones, I mean, the, the biggest one really was, you know, Crazy Rich Asians becoming the number one film at the box office. Right. At, yeah. at, the, same, at the same time that you had, um, you know, David Chang and Momofuku's Empire mm-hmm. really hitting a, you know, a fever pitch in New York City and around the world. Um, you know, the, the, the work that Anthony Bourdain had done um, to really, ele- I think, elevate the storytelling uh, yep. nature of, of, of our cultures. Um, and then you also, you know, I was like, these are lesser moments. But once I started kind of like peeling back the onion just a little bit and seeing what was happening in the rest of CPG, like specifically mm-hmm. the beauty and wellness space with how well a lot of... Um, uh, Korean beauty and Japanese beauty and others like yep, Asian yep. beauty brands were doing. It's like that's when the lights started going off on, huh? Why in beverages are we still are, are our flavors still relegated to you know the ethnic aisle or right. this and the other when like 
clearly, and I just, I, this one I just kind of knew, but like, you know, Asian Americans and, and, and Asians, you know, not, not necessarily Asian Americans are just like really good. I just found from my experience to be really good eaters, really adventurous, mm-hmm. um, you know, always were down for like the new thing or just to try out like what could be out there. Um, and, yeah. and so it was kind of a confluence of all of that, that started me down this path. And question, because I feel like where Americans tend to get their um, adventurous on does tend to be in the condiment aisle, right? Like that's sort of like where people are, the, the, the stakes feel a little bit lower for trying something new. And it's kind of like an easy way to to taste another culture without having to buy ingredients and like feel kind of like a loser in the kitchen. Um, (laughs) So was it ever a thought to you to do something in the condiment area or like why specifically beverage? Because I totally understand. And I mean, when you talk about like K beauty, yeah, it makes sense that, I mean, I guess, and it's interesting putting it into context with something like crazy rich agents where maybe that just like there was a whole sort of cultural shift towards sort of a big appreciation of this like otherness that was, you know, I mean, Asia is so huge. And I, I, I feel like even just saying <laughs> appreciation know, right? of Asia is like absurd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I get it. Like I get, I get that aha. And I'm just wondering, and was there a second aha about beverage or were, were, did you hone in on that? And like, how can I bring some of that into the world of consumer packaged grocery goods? Um, it, was, it was never quite that macro, if yeah. I'm being completely candid with you. I, yeah. Maybe this is one where my ignorance was um, kind of for the better in this, mm-hmm. in this position. So, you know, at the time, and it's it, honestly, it is as simplistic as in our, um, at this company that I worked for, our offices were stocked with basically LaCroix, Bubbly, mm-hmm. and two other kind of like more private label types of flavored sparkling water. Sparkling water yeah. And I would be, you know, frankly crushing like three mm-hmm. to five cans of like popple mousse. Um, right. And uh, I think it was orange bubbly a day. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that I kept kind of asking myself here, because and it was literally a fridge staring in front of us, right. was every single one of these brands has the same exact flavors. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, huh. All the same exact, yep. And I just I just truly wondered if there was anything there. It, was, it wasn't meant to be, at least in the beginning, like a major, uh, you know, like we're, we're planning our, 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 our stake in the ground. Right, like, you weren't disrupting be- the world of beverage. Yeah, it was just like, <laughs> what if we, it was just like, what if we played around with certain flavors? And then the yeah. biggest one that really got me was, um, Calamansi being, you know, being Filipino, it was a fruit that I had known and, you know, experienced when I traveled to the Philippines. And I just remember specifically it, uh, Calamansi as a flavoring in iced tea and mm-hmm. feeling like, wow, this is like the best citrus I think mm-hmm. I've like ever had. Like, you know, a lot of times like, if you have like a, an iced tea, you know, they might put like, uh, like a lemon usually with it or mm-hmm. sometimes a lime. Um, and it just felt like there was something else here that just feels pretty special. Yeah. Um, and so I played, that was actually the first fruit that I played around with, um, ordered a couple different purees off Amazon. And, you know, I, I first tried making 
a you know, a very traditional Filipino drink is um, essentially like a limeade using mm-hmm. calamansi. And it was delicious, but way too sugary. Um, right. The nutritionals on it were actually um, even more sugary, even more sugary and higher in calories than a uh, than a Coca Cola. And I was like, right. well, that's, I was like, well, yeah, that probably that. wasn't going to be commercially viable, no. right? <laughs> no, no, no. And, and it wasn't what I was going for. You know, I right. wanted something in the. I didn't want something a bit healthier. But then I basically just stripped out that. It was just like, hey, again, it was it was almost as simple as buying. It actually was as simple as buying. A, uh, a 12 pack of Canada dry mm-hmm. seltzer water, uh, squeezing a couple, you know, uh, a couple of ounces of uh, calamansi juice in there. And all of a sudden it was like, huh, this could be interesting enough right. um, to really start moving. So, yeah. And so I had Bill Creelman on um, ah. last year and uh, from Spindrift. If you haven't heard his episode, it's, it's really good. He's like a wonderful guy. Um, the OG, the OG, but I mean, you know, we have a pretty like challenging supply chain in the fresh sauce world. Um, people would be shocked to know how challenging it is to make a flavored sparkling water (laughs) that doesn't have like quote unquote natural, whatever they call, you know, natural ingredients or additional, you know, um, were you surprised? I mean, when, like, so you liked the way it tasted and you thought, okay, am I, I'm going to see if I can, if I can produce this. I mean, did you, did you go down that road, you know, immediately? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, candidly, yes. And I think again, another aspect to this business where the ignorance is bliss was, I don't think I realized just how difficult it would be. Um, yeah, I don't I, think I, any I, of us realized how difficult it would be. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure even Bill, right? It's like you know, no, I mean, it's like yeah, and 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 his, you know, and their, um, you know, their fruit supplies are even in better, you know, there's even a better mm-hmm. supply chain around, you know, lime juice, lemon juice, orange juice, right? So yeah, grapefruit juice. So um, I don't think I fully appreciated it. I also think I was very fortunate because uh, I hopped in right as Spindrift was, was kind of taking off. Like to be candid, right. like I just wasn't, I just wasn't super ingrained right. into this world. I'd only heard of Spindrift after I had, um, you know, really started doing R and D. And so, yeah, it's been, it, it's, it's been an interesting path. I, I've, I've read a bit about Bill's, um, yeah. you know, scaling and, and in many ways, if I see him, you know, at Expo West next year or wherever, <laughs> if, if we're, if we're ever having any of these again, <laughs> right. I mean, ever. the first thing I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to do is thank him just because I mean, it's obviously there's an element of this industry that's, you know, good, that's competitive, right? It's, it's beverages, but at the same time, yeah. him, him blazing the trail, um, you know, only makes it possible for folks like myself to right. engage with certain co-packers or, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Or even a, or even a certain consumer, right? And so, yeah, no, for um, sure. Very, gr- very um, grateful for what he for the for the trail that he's blazed. Yeah, I mean, I I had Maya Kamal on the show, mm. and I thanked her for blazing the trail because she was the OG fresh sauce. Like there was yeah. no fresh sauce. Um, so I just want to know when you quit your day job, and then we're going to take a break. Yeah, so it's only been about eighteen months. So I actually my last. Uh, day of work was March 15, 2019. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And then the first official run for what you see now the, 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 in, in our cans um, was actually, we, it, it was like three different runs that happened between 
April and July of 2019. Right. Amazing. Okay. When we get back, um, we're going to talk about your R&D process. I know you love your operations, folks. I <clears throat> love your design. I want to talk to you about that. Um, but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a minute with Sandro Rocco, founder of Sanzo. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, I'm back with Sandro Rocco, founder of Sanzo. Okay, so you were in your kitchen and you were putting calamansi puree into seltzer water and it was good and it worked. And then how did you, what was the next step? I mean, you needed to find a, a commercial kitchen or did you want to design the packaging or did you want to raise money or, you know, what, what was point A? Sure. So the last part about raising money was definitely not uh, right. <laughs> near, really near that. Um, but the first two kind of went hand in hand. So um, I did know, or just looking at other, you know, uh, actually the very first thing that I did once I started go, once I started figuring out, okay, I maybe want to start exploring this business was mm -hmm. going to, and this is this is a a tip from um, you know another entrepreneur was, hey, go see where other you know, early stage brands are launched. And so yep. for me in New York City, um, mine was Forger's Markets in Chelsea on 22nd and 8th Avenue. Right. And walking in there, just kind of seeing, all right, you know, who's here? What, is, what are they selling? What do I like about this? Uh, you know, what don't I like? Um, one of the biggest things that I noticed was uh, you needed to have, or at least I, I thought for my product, needed to have three flavors um, mm -hmm. at, a, at, at a minimum. This is so helpful. This is so helpful. Okay. I hope everyone is listening and their ears perked up because you just gave like a bunch of really good advice. We're just going to break it down for one second. Cool. A, like you don't start a product in a vacuum, right? Like oh, oh yeah. go, go see where it's going to go. I mean, I am a really good sort of um, cautionary tale. Like I was basically a New Yorker that was shopping at Whole Foods. And my product had a very natural fit um, on Whole Foods shelves. 
But had I gone to Publix or Kroger or had I kind of like gone outside of my little bubble, I would have seen that it's actually kind of hard to figure out where a fresh sauce goes. Hmm. And that's okay, but you do want to have an opinion. So if you're making something that isn't sort of a better for you version of something, or instead of black bean, it's made with chickpea or whatever, and it doesn't have a natural space in the store, that's not like an idea killer, but it's definitely go figure out where you where you want it next to. And if it is something like a sparkling beverage that makes sense, then all the more reason to go and see like what's out there. How would you be like them? How would you not be like them? That's going to just like influence the way you price yourself. You don't want to be, we've talked about this a bunch of times on the show, like you don't want to be, you can be premium, but consumers aren't going to pay that much more if you kind of look the same and you're the same size. And even if you're a significantly better product, they're still not going to pay that much more. Um, what else did you say about learning what, what you on the shelf before we get to uh, the yeah. three SKUs? Like, because yeah, the I, shelf stuff is important. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you nailed it on the head, which is, and, and I think I'm more, um, perhaps a little bit more of a general take, but I think one of the biggest things that I've learned, especially, I know there's a lot of folks who may be coming into the industry from, more like technology backgrounds where you're kind of taught that like everything that you're doing, every keystroke, every line of code is, you know, disrupting the world and upending everything. And I think the biggest lesson that mm -hmm. I learned super early on was that it, it, it gets to the heart of what you said, which is at the end of the day, especially in supermarkets, um, in stores, you know, you, you need to have a place. Um, yeah. and, and if you don't have a thing that, if you don't have a product or a branding that has a specific to find place where you can picture it on shelf, where customers are going to be pulling it. Um, you really, I don't think, have an effective consumer packaged good. I think you're actually seeing a lot of that now with um, certain- All of um, the digitally native brands, right? Yeah. That, that aren't made, necessarily that made, made for yep. the shelf. Yeah. Correct. And I think it's, I think to your point, it's fine. You know, I think it's, it's certainly fine in the early days. Um, you know, don't want to, especially knowing and, and seeing how many brands um, have made changes to their packaging design, their mm -hmm. ingredient panels and whatnot as time has gone on. It's certainly not the case that your first iteration will be your final one, but like it is important uh, at each stage of your brand's uh, you know, like life cycle to, right. to, to play well in the arena that you're playing. In. And I think, it's right. like, and, and the biggest thing that I'd say there is it's really having a level of one humility um, cause I think you really have to like lay down your ego, right. um, once you're in market and the two empathy. I mean, I can't imagine I, I, one of the biggest things, especially as a brand owner, you know, operating the brand marketing side of this business is you have to have an empathy for your customers. Like this isn't, yeah. um, I mean, there's a number of things where I think you could build that don't necessarily require empathy, but with food and beverage, you know, uh, products that, you know, that you, that capture, you know, four out of the five senses, it's like right. an ultimately super like human centric experience. Um, you know, it's so interesting. So you're like, I know, and we're still going to get, before we go <laughs> to this, I just also, the, the three skew thing is very important. Yeah, so yeah. everyone who is unfamiliar with SKU, just think of it as like, you need three different flavors because you just want to have enough of like, first of all, I was always taught like flowers in a vase, you always start with three, 
<laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, like I don't that. know where I got that, but I do everything in odds. Like I do candlesticks in odds and I do <laughs> flowers in odds. Like odds are pretty and they look good. And also three is just like kind of a good number because you, you know, you have a little presence on the shelf and you yep. look like a big kid a little bit, you know? Um, but was there more to it than that, I guess, from your perspective, or was it more about like your shelf presence? Uh, it was a combination of shelf presence, um, colors. So I knew that I wanted yeah. the drink to have a bit of uh, pop. And then the other part um, was frankly like a bit of representation. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I think if I launched one skew and it was Calamansi, as much as I love Calamansi, you know, uh, a fruit from the from an island nation like the Philippines, love it. But like, we're not super highly represented in the American demographic. So right. just launching a one skew product, I think would have been a bit more difficult. Um, Do you feel like the mango, the mango kind of rounded out the lychee and the calamansi because it, it was like some a little bit more identifiable for people who didn't necessarily know lychee. Exactly, exactly, and and and, and certainly I did not do that, by the way. <laughs> fair, fair. Well, yeah. No, and I, I, it's like I'm still learning, so <laughs> I think that's very that was very thoughtfully done. You had two that were like. Maybe, maybe 50, maybe 60% of American consumers would recognize. And then mango is probably closer to an 80%, right? I mean, or 85, but, you know, it's surprising how, when we think of like what percentage of Americans know this flavor, it's always significantly lower than you (laughs) think it's going to be. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say I couldn't quantify it for you, but that right. was, at least qualitatively, yes, that was the idea. Right. So going back to what you were saying, so th- it's interesting because I could not agree with you more. I mean, I think, you know, we made our sauces to help people feel more confident in the kitchen. We did not make our sauces because we wanted to be disruptors or because, you know, I wanted everyone to know my story. Like, I think that there are brands that come very much from an empathic perspective. And then there are brands that come from this sort of like founder glory, you know, it'll make you cool if you associate yourself with this brand perspective. And I'm sure there's a lot in between, but I do think that the key component that you're talking about there is empathy. And I also think that it's harder for sort of a brand that's like going to be launched in sort of the wholesale kind of grocery store world to be, it's easier, let's say, for like one of the digitally native brands to be all about the founder story because there's room to tell that story Sure. when you're primarily buying a product that way. Whereas like someone today actually said to me, why can't you have what to do with the sauces on the grocery store shelves? And I was like, that's just not how grocery grocery stores are not going to, who's doing that? Right. Nope. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, you can try to have a hang tag on your product or you can try to tell as much as you possibly can on the package. 
but it's just a different, you kind of have to, if you're going into grocery stores, I guess this is my very long-winded point. You have to have that empathy because you're going, no one's going to know what to do with you if you don't. And they're not going to know what to make of you. If you're starting digitally native, then you have a little bit more leeway to kind of, you know, be creative and, and be, you know, like you said, every part of it should be disrupting something. But if you're starting grocery, people need to know what it is, where it goes, what I should be doing with it. And, you know, in our case, I, I didn't know enough to know that changing people's behavior from like the middle of the store to the fresh set, changing people's understanding of sauce from a bottle and jar to a squeezy pouch with the spout, and introducing people to flavors like Romesco and Harissa, like those were, th that was three things that were, that was a lot, you know, to take on. And so I think what you've done so brilliantly is you've just changed, you know, they look poppy, they look happy, they're pretty colors, but, but you're not trying to completely change someone's understanding of what sparkling water is or should be. You kind of, you only changed one key variable and, and it's just, it's a, it was just a very smart, you made a bunch of very smart choices. Oh, I, well, thank I think. you. I appreciate um, that. Yeah, no. And I mean, I'd like to talk a little bit about the design because it's beautiful Thank you. Um, and it's, and it's happy, but it's also, it doesn't look cutesy. Like it's just, it kind of like, what was your, if you, you probably didn't have like a full design brief because I didn't know what that was until like three days ago. But <laughs> when you first met the design team, what were the, what were the words that you used to describe what you wanted? What were your kind of like. Did you have a mood board? Like, how did you arrive from what was in your brain to what's on the cans? Yeah. And is it the uh, first round, I guess? That's also, has it sure. changed? Sure, sure. Um, so to answer the last question first, because I think that's the, because I think it's the easiest, um, <laughs> actually not really. The packaging for the most part. So actually I started out uh, in glass bottles, mostly because oh, uh -huh. it was the cheapest. Um, so did Bill. <laughs> it was well, it, 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 right, yeah, with the, with the sodas. Um, well, it was the cheapest form factor to get initial testing on. So mm -hmm. the actual logo, as you see it, and the layout is actually exactly the same. The only thing that that did change between the bottle and the can was we did incorporate um, functional callouts from samplings that we did. So to to, to, to further illuminate that, um, when I was pouring out samples, the number one question that, that people would get that I would get from people is, is this thing made with real fruit? And mm -hmm. do you add any sugar to this? And, and that's why on the can it says made with real fruit, no added sugar. <laughs> right. Exactly. They actually yeah. care more. Actually, I learned, and again, I had no idea about this. People actually cared way more about that than the actual calorie count. So we moved right. calories over to like, you know, that lower side um, part of the panel. I was originally uh, going to lay it out with calorie counts there. Um, so interesting because we're having, this is really good. Again, this is so helpful. Like I'm going to get a lot of DMs about this episode because <laughs> the really, really helpful ones, like the tactical ones are the ones people love. That's why I keep interrupting you. I'm sorry. Oh, no but um, sampling, 
you, you, you basically came out with something that was essentially like a minimum viable product for like lack of a better term. It wasn't in necessarily the final packaging, but you learned a lot. And it was like, that was that the plan? Were you thinking like, I'm going to get as much information as I can doing it in bottles and then I'll know what to put on the cans and I'll know what things to call out and I'll see if they work and if people even like them. I mean, was, were you, were you as thoughtful about it as it sounds like in retrospect? Actually, uh, I'd say yes. Um, Good. You know, but it was, but it was, it was, it was practical, right? So, so for right. me, I didn't, I didn't want to raise um, a bunch of money. I actually really was committed to self-financing for as long as I could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I looked at the, you know, for anyone who's about to get into beverages, the minimum order quantity um, for a canned beverage versus a bottled beverage is about like 20x difference. So um, just so everyone understands, maybe right. just break that down a little bit for the listeners, just in yeah. case they're not there so, yet. Of course. So the minimum order, so the minimum runs, so basically I said, wanted to, you, you use minimum viable product. I think it's a great, um, you know, moniker, um, the minimum viable product I felt like was uh, was essentially what you could do with a glass bottle was 500 bottles per SKU with uh, SKU per flavor um, with a local producer. On the flip side, producing a canned beverage, the minimum on that was 10,000 units per, right. per flavor. And, and no early stage. (laughs) You definitely don't want to commit to making 10,000 units of anything because that's going to be hard to sell when you're not out in the world yet. So that makes a lot of sense. Did you find the finding the bottler and then consequently the can producer relatively easy or was that a hard process? Um, So for me, it was actually relatively easy. Um, because, and I think this is something that I would definitely, and I have recommended to every aspiring founder, it gets back to this whole um, aspect of like humility. Uh, so when I went into Forager's Market, I would just, out of the blue, either Instagram DM, LinkedIn cold message, um, or email, or find the emails of the founders and just email them, and basically try to barter uh, you know, e-commerce bits that I had had. So I had had experience buying Facebook and Instagram ads mm-hmm. uh, and whatnot. And basically in an in, in exchange, learning about food and beverage CPG and uh, in, right. in those trades, what I would come, um, you know, contacts. And yeah, you know, I think the biggest thing I, I have learned is, you know, whether it's co-packers, uh, dis- distributors, supply partners, um, the warm intro really makes yep. a huge difference. Um, yeah. So, I mean, especially like everyone's starting, I mean, I don't know as much now, but although I haven't really, I don't, think innovation's dying down right now. But it just became everyone had everyone had an idea for a product. I mean, yeah. and so these co-packers that, you know, they it's an investment on their part to take your product and to, and to figure out how to make it work and to produce it because, you know, time on their machinery is taking away from time, you know, for other for other companies. So for those of you that are looking for co-packers, just, I would, I would add to Sandra's point about coming at them with humility and empathy. They're not lucky to get to produce your product. (laughs) They might eventually be lucky, but right now they, they're 
essentially, while they are getting paid, they're also doing you kind of a favor by taking you on that early. And at the very least, they're deserving, I think, of, of our humility as founders. And, you know, a, a little bit less like you get to you get to be a part of my ride and a little bit more of like, I really appreciate your confidence in me goes a long way. Yeah. And I'll say I've never met at least an early stage co-packer who's living in a mansion, living large, yeah. right? They're in the trenches. And yeah. so, you know, if you come at, and so it's almost like if you think about, and again, have that level of empathy towards them. I mean, they really are your business partners who are like you said, taking a chance and in the weeds of it all as well. This is how they provide for their families as well. So yep. um, it's pretty, it's pretty serious business. Yeah. So going back to your, you, you made the bottles and you wanted to get as much information as you could. Did you get information that you didn't even know that you didn't know? Um, yeah, actually one of the biggest things I got was, and again, I knew that I was going to move over into cans anyway. Um, right. But uh, a, a common thing, both good and bad is that people would remark on the color. Um, mm -hmm. And so they would say that I mean, so on the good side, it was, Hey, this beverage is a really nice color. So, you know, so some folks may go and purchase it, you know, you know, or pull it off the shelf because of that. Other folks would look at it and because of the color, maybe say, Ooh, this looks like a high sugary soda. Okay. Or they would taste it and be like, Hmm, that's not what I thought it would be. I thought it would be sweeter. Sugarier. And frankly, yep. yeah. And, and they liked that, but it was a bit of a cognitive dissonance. And so fortunately, you know, I think both of the, yeah, a bit of it got solved by us moving over into cans. Um, there's a, a lot less of a dissonance and just the fact that we're in a, we're in a can. Um, right. But that was another little, like another tidbit that's just interesting yeah. to get from pouring samples. <laughs> and did you hire the design firm that you ended up working with in the bottle, like before the bottle? And were they a part of like, were they a part of this sort of discovery process for you? Like, were those adorable, like dotted, you know, like the Kalamansi, the way it's like dotted with sure. the, you know, the leaf. I just, I love the graphics. Oh, um, thank you. Was that on a label on the bottle? That was. It's, it's, actually, yeah, it, it's, it's almost exactly the same. Just take, um, you know, what we did from the can, apply it to a plastic right. bottle and that, or a right. glass bottle and it would be, pretty similar. Um, you know, this, uh, this agency, um, the creative director and I had worked uh, in all, I guess, uh, transparency. I did work with this, uh, agency at my last job. They, mm -hmm. you know, we'd worked pretty intimately. So I was head of marketing for a bit and we worked pretty right. intimately on, out on my, my, on my last company's rebrand. And so being able to leverage that relationship was, um, you know, very helpful. But at the same time, I will also say I had a very strong point of view, uh, I did come in with a mood board. I even came in with a playlist because I, 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 yeah. I basically hit as many senses as you could yes. that I wanted this brand to make you feel. Um, Will you tell me a little bit about that? Because I, I'll, I'll be like, and this random Nike sneaker from 1974 yeah. is like what I want my whole yeah. world to be. Like, how extensive did you go? What were some of like the words that you used? What were you, and what was the experience that you were trying to create? Like yeah. what, what was on that soundtrack and can we get a link to it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's on Spotify somewhere. Um, the number one, the number one word that I used was funk. Um, uh -huh. And as a, as a, as a principal, I always felt like 
especially the creative folks, um, as much as they say they may want, you know, a blue sky, they actually really like constraints. And so yes. the best, so, and so one of the biggest things that I learned from my last company and, you know, applied to this, uh, to our creative brief here, uh, was I did a this, not that. So mm-hmm. I was like, Harlem, not Williamsburg, uh, right. Momofuku, Momo not, um, you know, some three Michelin star Japanese right. sushi restaurant. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wanted it to be a little bit, you know, more loud, more colorful. And then yep. the, the soundtrack was, I think there was a heavy bit of uh, like mid eighties, uh, Michael Jackson's and Bruno yeah. Mars. Um, yeah. You know, it's yeah. water. You needed to be a little bit peppy. Um, I love the this, not that. I think that's a great exercise even for people just to do for themselves, you know, yeah. like, Because, you know, I think a lot of times founders also sort of make the mistake, again, going back to your humility, even though like we're not consciously not being humble, but we're kind of like, I don't really love the way that looks. And then everyone is like, what the hell does that mean? They don't know what you mean, you know, or like, I'm not really that into, you know. And so, I mean, personally, I've had to get so much better and my team will tell you like, I need more white space or I need, I think I'd like the font to be stronger or I want more movement or I want something a little bit more, you know, you have to not like, you have to really dig in and figure out, okay, there's a lot of not that, right. But what's the, this, you know, and pro tip, uh, because, because everyone talks probably rightly so about, you know, agents, if you're, if you're working with a branding agency, who's designing your logo or your branding about it being mm-hmm. very expensive. That is why it costs a lot of money. And so right. pro tip, the more you give them the, the, the less expensive your scope of work and the right. project can actually be. So it actually, the and, discovery and, phase takes less. Yeah, exactly. And the better the work product will be in the end. So for right. a lot of reasons, it, it, I think it pays to have exactly what you said, a point of view. Okay. So there are two big topics that I wanted to talk about, and yet we only have five minutes. So I'm going to let you choose. Sure. Okay. Topic one is launch. The You did a very, in my opinion, innovative, unusual. I also had Mike Messersmith from Oatly on last year, and we were talking about just like knowing every Every product has to come into the world a little differently and distinguish itself a little differently. And there's no roadmap. There's no best practice. If for Oatly, it happened to be like it was through the baristas of New York that made it like, you know, a hot commodity. But what you did, I thought was really smart. So you kind of found these like kind of cool Asian vibe places and started there so that you kind of, you started kind of entering people's brains. So that is topic number one. That's door number one. Okay. (laughs) Door number two is I've also read that in terms of the sort of channel um, of direct to consumer, while it wasn't necessarily your launch plan because of COVID, it became um, an important sales channel for you in the last couple of months. And I'm wondering how that sort of affected the way that you're thinking about sales and direct to consumer. And even though you're not like a digitally native brand, you are very much like up and down the street to some extent, like sure. 
there has been, you know, this, there is like an e-commerce element here that maybe took you a little bit by surprise in contrast to like an ugly, for example, I also had Hugh on last Love year you. Love you. and Hugh was like all about D to C from the get go, build out D to C and then build out, you know, the, the wholesale business. So sure. that's door number two. So which one do you want to talk about for the last three and a half minutes? I feel like door number two is a topic that a lot of folks talk about. So I'd actually prefer to stray away from there. I feel like there's probably enough resources, especially now during COVID right. um, to, to go with. I do. I, I, I mean, maybe so, I also like, I also feel like door number one may be more fun and everyone asks me about D2C and Ecom. So I kind of just want to switch right. it up. Okay. Um, let's go to door number one. <laughs> so, And so, if anyone's interested in door number two, you know, you can DM, I'll send it over to Sandra <laughs> and he'll, uh, he'll give you an answer, but for sure. Okay. So tell me about that because that is, you know, it, it's, it's special, right? It's a, it's like a different way to kind of, I had, I didn't have to think about that because I had a cooking school and I had people that, that trusted sure. us for sure. making dinner. But if I were just coming to this like world with like a fresh sauce, you can't just be like, now I'm here, right? So sure. tell me about the launch plan, the strategy, what was behind it? What were you going for? How did it work? Sure. So to be completely honest, um, Oatly was probably exemplar number one of like of what my goal was to emulate, but right. you know, adapt for my product. Um, mm -hmm. I was very, you know, I was very aware of what they did and felt like, huh, well, that's a very uh, just like just a great way to it's just a great way to launch a a, a product and you yeah. know for me like in in the early discovery phase uh, one of the biggest things that I had come to very early on I had ha I was having dinner at Momofuku Sambar one night and then I think a couple nights later I went to Momofuku Noodle Bar if you can't tell my 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 key thing here was find something you can sell into Momofuku and it can sell into the rest of the Asian. Uh, right. a whole bunch of other Asian inspired concepts, but like I, I just really admired what Dave Chang has, you know, yeah. done as a chef and also what he's built as a, as, as a brand. And mm -hmm. you know what I found, it was actually in many ways my moment of like, all right, that's the time to get really serious about this. Was if you go into specifically Sambar, which is it's more uh, full service restaurants, um, uh, not only is awarded well for their food, but is also very well regarded for their um, for the wine program and mm -hmm. yeah, just knowing a little bit about restaurants and how much attention is paid to a place like this at every part of the menu. I right. found it very interesting to look at their non-alcoholic menu. And literally the items were Coke, Sprite, Dr. Pepper and San Pellegrino. And wow, I was right. like, well, if you could just make a product that worked for Momofuku Sambar and all the other Momofuku types um, out there, well, that's at least a place to start. And if people yeah. are willing to try it and maybe get hooked there, then maybe you can build it out from there. But like, you know, I, I tried to come at it very humbly, which is, you know, we're not going to try to take on the entire world at once. Um, right. I just heard about these things called slotting fees and it was just like, okay, don't, <laughs> I don't want to yeah. do that. That's scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, felt like, especially at food service restaurants, I, I just know where I, I eat out a lot. I live in New York. And I'm like, mm -hmm. there's not like the menus there are just way more limited, right? There's only a few drink options. But right. I figured, you know, if we could be one of those that are on the menu, it'd be and just kind of tack on a lot of wins. 
uh, in New York City, just stay super focused there. Um, maybe you could add that up to something pretty interesting, or at least start, you know, if, if, we, if we eventually knew we were going to be a Whole Foods type of brand, well, then maybe by the time we were in Whole Foods, people were already drinking. Already be pulling. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that was, that, it was it. Like, I have to admit, like, you know, I've, I've, I've listened to a couple talks from Mike. Uh, I'm very, I was very inspired by at least go to market in the yeah. United States. Um, yeah, That's definitely awesome. cribbed <laughs> very much cribbed yeah. from, from their strat, from their playbook. No, but you, you, you cribbed it. I mean, you didn't crib it, but you, it was, you know, you amended it to to like what made sense. Yeah. Um, I'm so sad we're out of time. And I know that Jess and, you know, her predecessor, Matt, for those of you who listen, like, they're always like, you got to stop at five. So it's 5.01. I'm so sorry. And I just thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, of course, have many, many more questions, but um, this has been so much fun. Sandro, I think you're the bee's knees and I think you're building it so smart and so well. Um, and I, I happen to love the product too. And I'm not a huge sparkling person, but it's not like hiccupy sparkling for me. So it's kind of perfect. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. Jess, thank you for, um, for your engineering skills Listeners, thank you as always. I'm so happy this is continuing to help you guys and stick with it. Um, if you're going through it right now, this too shall pass mm. and um, we'll all be okay. So I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.